Welcome to this initial introduction episode of a new project we're working on that we decided to call Myth is America. This is Nick Lee. And this is Jared Benson. In this episode, we're just going to briefly give a background of kind of how we got to this point, what we hope to accomplish out of this project, uh, kind of where the name came about, and what we're going after here. Um, Jared and I, in our teaching history together, have taught a few classes. The first one we ever taught together was titled Resistance and Revolution. Then we followed that up with a course uh, titled Ideology and Isms, where we explore different political and social ideologies and how they motivate people's behavior. As we ourselves became experts on resistance movements throughout time in different locations and sort of the way people think throughout time in different locations um, and really got more into American history, which was kind of forced upon us. We did some extensive research into the American War for Independence. We feature it in our class. Um, so both of us are well versed in that. And we kind of started realizing that informed by a few theories, mainly by political scientist Eric Selbin and his theories on agency and revolution, etc., we started realizing how ironic it is that the United States paints this narrative of uh, really focusing on nonviolent protest and democratic means as a way to make change in society, when in reality, the history of both oppression and resistance throughout the entire uh, history of the nation has been incredibly violent, um, incredibly radical, uh, you might even argue revolutionary. So partially one of the reasons we wanted to take on this project, one of our goals is to paint an alternate history of our country that is focused on the history of oppression and the history of resistance uh, to that oppression. The reason the title came about, Myth is America, is because we want to challenge the traditionally delivered historical narrative of the United States of America. Uh, we're claiming that that is almost 100% mythology at this point, that we get the history of, I think it's Eric Forner that uses the term, the men of marble, the men that you see their statues in the National Mall in D.C., etc., but we get almost no history of the marginalized populations and their fight against the oppression usually imposed upon them by the state itself or by the elite wielding the power of the state and their monopolization uh, on violence. And this uh, is – I'll chime in here. This is by no means a, a wholeheartedly like, novel project. We are, of course, inspired by numerous historians, social theorists, even philosophers, political scientists that have attempted like similar things in the past, right? Howard Zinn, of course, clearly with the People's History of the United States of America or even before him, Charles Beard and what he was able to do crafting an argument that the Constitution itself was merely an economic document, not a document that, that – that perpetuated ideals of freedom and democracy and things along those lines. So it's not necessarily wholly original within the field of U.S. historiography, um, nor is it even on a global level, right? Edward Said with his Orientalism kind of introduced post-structuralism into historical discourse, and we've got uh, Ranajit Gupta, Guha, uh, excuse my pronunciation there, uh, who uh, crafted great historiographies called like subaltern stu studies, especially in Southeast Asia and India. Um, so again, it's not like a completely wholly original idea. We don't want to take uh, uh, credit for for being the first to ever think, hey, man, we should probably tell the history of the oppressed or the marginalized or the subjugated. And also while we're doing that, we must stress this, and this is where, where we're going to ruffle some feathers, critique probably uh, – uh, 
unconventionally the prevailing individuals, systems, institutions, and ideas that we have all been, uh, if you grew up here, socialized into believing in, into subscribing to. So we are. We're going to, again men of marble, we've been conditioned to uh, almost worship uh, the architects of the country or the institutions or the documents. And so so what we're here to do is to, yeah, like to to deconstruct it. It is very post-structuralist, which Nick will get thrilled with. If you're listening to our other thing on stateless societies, you'll know he loves the post-structuralist discourse. Uh, but yes, this is something that we feel uh, needs to be brought into the 21st century. Uh, and, uh, and not everybody's going to read these books or these classical history historians or these post-structural historians that we've been talking about. So I'll let Nick keep going here, but yeah. Yeah, this really was motivated by, we both began to notice that both in our classes together and in our individual classes alone, really the time that the students were most, I think, interested and we were really delivering new information was when we were giving them this alternate history of the United States things that they had never heard before. Like as an example, a couple of weeks ago in my intro to sociology class, I did a lecture on Bacon's rebellion and the invention of whiteness in America, which we'll do an episode on uh, very shortly. And literally no student had ever, only two of them had even heard of Bacon's rebellion and not a single one of them had ever heard of the legal establishment of the white race in America, like literally a class of 35 uh, college age students. And this is the history that people need to know about their country, but also that activists that are seeking to change the country need to be uh, made aware of, because as Eric Selvin describes, social movements can tie themselves and orient themselves into a rich history of resistance, which informs their actions, uh, their motivations, their methods, creates solidarity among their among their ranks, etc. And if we don't have that history in the United States, uh, at least if we don't have it being told regularly, it's completely silenced or subjugated, then it's difficult for social movements to tie themselves into uh, this narrative. And what we both think is completely ridiculous is that this narrative isn't being told in our country, at least not popularly, and it absolutely should be because it's totally there. And the narrative... Uh is one of the most important things that inform, again, regardless of where you live, it import, uh, the narratives that we uh, subscribe to or are taught from basically inform the way we think, the way we speak, and the way we act. So everything we learn, we learn from story. And if the story is always, of course, manipulated or manufactured or constructed in a certain way, it leads to social engineering uh, or conditioning. And that's one of the things that we're looking to, of course, challenge here. And and the irony is, is with the more information we get, again, the, the, the further along we get in society, again, with the internet, all of these ways that we can look into debunking the mythology of, of history that we learn it actually has gotten worse. Students are taught less history than they were before. So the the myth is actually uh, self-perpetuating in this regard. And it gets us to create maybe societies or at least be part of a society where most of us are not necessarily critical thinkers. We are just quote-unquote doers, right? We, have res- we, we follow, of course, authority and we show respect to institutions that tell us to respect them, of course, or we operate in economic systems that are uh, very disadvantageous advantageous to us, and yet we don't know of any other options because none of, no other options have ever been taught to us. These are just a few examples. Um, of course, we'll do some cliche examples that people are aware of, the Pocahontases and the Columbuses, but we'll also do some that are going to be... Uh, 
probably new for a lot of our listeners here. Uh, just as Nick gave an example regarding Bacon's Rebellion, you have no idea how many times I've sat in just a U.S. history class and brought up primary sources written by uh, writers or poets of color or women that many of our students have never even heard of, right? They're used to, of course, reading the quote-unquote classics as dictated by English departments or history departments, and those classics all tend to be from the same demographic, which also leads to the establishment or the belief in a current day society that we must still subscribe uh, to the dominant ideologies of, in this case, if we're talking about the United States, two and a half centuries ago. So. In our revolutions class, we teach the American War for Independence as a social movement, and we analyze it from that perspective. And that is nothing new. That's been done by historians for a long time now. Uh, but just anecdotally, one semester, one student got upset with the way that we were presenting the sort of almost like deified at this point, actors and actions that took place in the American War for Independence. Um, and Jared and I ended up on the national news for that one. And we got some death threats in our emails and things like that. And it really just made us think long and hard about there's really something there. There's really something in telling this history in a way that isn't glossy and, you know, sort of cleansed and whitewashed and telling the real history of the people that were involved and the marginalized and subjugated populations that were taking part in these activities uh, throughout time. And so we started thinking to ourselves, you know, what if we just what if we just talked about that and we just, our goal actually in the beginning was we were going to create an entire class that was just this. We sort of abandoned that project uh, and really just wanted to focus on doing a podcast about it right now just to explore the idea. But we'll ex um, disclose now in the first sort of the introduction, our goal for this in the long term is to create a documentary film. And we've been working on uh, proposals and outlines and things like that. But we really want to use this podcast to sort of flush out some of these ideas and, you know, do some research and plan these out and connect with guest speakers, etc., uh, to tell these stories that are traditionally have never been told, some of them. So we'll kind of close out here in this introduction with one of our most cliche sayings we say on the first day of class, whatever class it is we're teaching, whether it's one of my individual U.S. history classes or one of our collective uh, or co-taught revolutionary classes. And it is. It's a saying uh, that at this point feels cliche, but it's important. Nothing of any consequence comes from a place of comfort, and this podcast or this episode is going to make people uncomfortable, and that's important. It's where that discomfort lies, where it's in that space of discomfort that we can actually learn, improve, and progress. So that's it. All right, that's it. You can get more of us online. We actually have two websites. Revolutionandideology.com is the home of this project and our other podcast project. Uh, MythIsAmerica.com is the home of this specific project. Uh, you can get us on Twitter at RevAndIdeology.com. You can email us if you'd like at hello at RevolutionIdeology.com. Uh, we're on iTunes and you can subscribe uh, anywhere else. One more thing, though, the title. We would be completely remiss if there was not at least some inspiration from a very popular song about a year ago by, by of course, Childish Gambino, who in his video does very much so well of what we're trying to talk about. So again, I, I cannot leave that one out. Can't forget. 100%. All right. We'll talk to you guys next time in the next episode. We hope you keep listening with us and subscribe. Uh, talk to you later.